Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can and will change the world. I love people who break their own boundaries, the little mental structures and frameworks that they've been taught to believe and suddenly rediscover themselves and their purpose and their mission. Uh, I just love that. And then you combine that when they find that purpose and mission on something that's resonating throughout the world. And uh, one of the biggest things that is, of course, resonating in the world right now and asking us to reimagine our world is the future of work. And our uh, guest today is a woman who has challenged herself in many different manifestations of her life and, uh, of course, lived to, to talk about it. And uh, she is a well-known and well-respected speaker, thought leader in many different areas, including the future of work. And I can't wait to have a great conversation with Kim Sealing smith Kim, welcome. Hello, Ron. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Absolutely. You were just a few minutes ago, as we introduced ourselves, you were uh, uh, finishing an amazing journey of your life. And we're not going to spend time on this podcast, but for my community of listeners, you need to one day have Kim Sealing Smith tell you the journey of her life. It's an absolutely remarkable journey and gives her actually the creds to talk about the things that interest her today. And, and so what I want to do first, Kim, is I want to kind of peel back, if I can, pull on a thread on this term future of work and where you're seeing it manifested in the world, the big why behind it, because you're you're the kind of person who explores the great why as well. So oh, tell, oh, let's I'm pull on that thread. Why is yeah. that such a hot topic these days? Well, it's almost, you know, it's the future of work is almost a passe term because the future of work is now. Um, and the future of work is also uncertain uh, because it is evolving constantly. Um, the third thing that I'll say about the future of work before answering your question is that it's also a dichotomy. Um, I, I traveled to India. I spent four months in India about 12 years ago. And before my trip to India, my yoga teacher, I went there studying yoga, and my yoga teacher in New Zealand at the time said, uh, anything that you say about India, you can say exactly the opposite and both will be true. And that's sort of what I feel about the future of work because it is a dichotomy and we're still figuring this out. So I started becoming fascinated by the future of work when I first realized that there was this thing called the skill shortage that was barreling down at us that we cannot do anything about because our in most countries in the world, our birth rates have been declining and our workforce is aging. So we have a greater, a, a, a much less percentage, a, a smaller percentage moving into the workforce over the next few decades as are leaving the workforce. Now, automation and AI will change roles, but in the short to midterm, they, it will actually increase roles. So I started reading about this skill shortage back in, um, oh, 2010, 2012. 
And then I, I saw a TED talk, a TEDx talk by a gentleman by the name of Rainer Strack. And he talked about this upcoming skill shortage. And I'm an, a recovering accountant, as you know. So I'm a little bit of a numbers junkie. I was a terrible accountant, but I'm still a numbers junkie. And I I went, wow, this is this is really going to have a significant impact. How are we going to solve this challenge? And that was the first question that I started asking myself is how are we going to solve this challenge of the skill shortage when we physically do not have enough people on the planet to replace those that are retiring, much less help organizations and businesses grow? Now, I am, even though I've worked in the human capital and leadership space for the last 15 years, I very much have a commercial perspective because I am a, a trained accountant, as I said. Um, I have run businesses, including this one, but I've had previous businesses in the past. So I've always got a commercial hat on. And I always look at things from a standpoint of how are companies going to not make money, because I think that's a byproduct of making an impact on the planet, but how are companies going to do both good and well, and how are people going to thrive, and how are we going to solve this challenge? So started talking about the future of work before anybody was talking about the future of work. And what the, what the um, research was saying was that about 2025, that we would really start to feel this crunch. And then COVID happened and COVID changed the world of work forever. And in fact, here in Australia, where I, I currently live and, and spend most of my time, I work throughout the world, but I, I do spend most of my time in Australia since the pandemic. And since we can do so many things virtually now, which is great. Um, you know, I, I like to say that the world of work changed on Friday, the 13th of March, 2020, because that's when our prime minister said that COVID was a thing and that those of us who could work from home needed to work from home. And on the face of it, unless you are involved in the logistics of getting your entire staff to work from home literally overnight, on the face of it, that was a, a fairly minor change. But what ended up happening is that change ended up accelerating all of the or many of the workforce trends that we had seen build over time. Trends like the rise of the for-purpose organization. Now, I'm not talking about not-for-profit. I'm talking about for-purpose. That can actually be traced back to Bill Gates addressing Davos in 2009, but it never really gained traction until COVID hit. Uh, the four-day work week, that's been around for decades, but it never gained traction until COVID hit. So COVID was like the first domino to fall, which accelerated all of these other trends. And so now we're in the future of work and we're figuring the future of work out. And we are, um, we're, we're in this, this space of uh, recognizing and coming to terms with bigger questions like what work is really, um, how do we, how does work fulfill needs in our life that go above and beyond making money and, and surviving, uh, putting food on our table. And we're seeing that with, you know, the stats, there was a, a stat from the university of South Australia just last week that said that up to 45% of people here in Australia are willing to take up to 20% pay reduction for flexible work. 
So the rules are changing. They're constantly evolving. And so the dichotomy is we're in the future of work and the future of work is still evolving. I just, um, I'm writing furiously, everybody, just so you know, because this is fascinating. There's so much to unwrap here. But the, um, I mean, you start with skill shortage that that definitely was predictable based on the aging workforce, based on the birth rates in many of the countries, because this is a global phenomenon. And when you talk about skill shortage, you have to talk about uh, demographically what skills you're referring to. So it could mm. be in the STEM area, in mathematics, mm. science, it could Absolutely. be in just the pure sweat labor area, yeah. could be in leadership. Uh, so there's all sorts of things to break down there. But then you switched, you pivoted, and you said, that's just one thing. Mm. And now it's the nature of work itself. So we may actually find a way around the skill shortage. You know, most of us would say, oh, it's probably going to be automation like AI. But but that isn't the real thing. The nature Correct. of work, the nature of being human and their work yes. is really a fascinating subject in and of itself. And let me throw a couple stats at you that I've been digging on. Mm. So back in 1854, there was a gentleman. He's on my bookshelf behind me, Kim. Henry David Thoreau, who said, ah, yes. most men live lives of quiet desperation. Yes. And then in 2023, Gallup publishes their engagement report. Yes. And sure enough, 73% of people, work doesn't matter. No, no, exactly right. I, now that, now that's a crisis. That's an epidemic. Absolutely. And I, I was trying to get to the root of that. Because there's so, do you know how many millions of dollars are spent every year on leadership development programs? Absolutely. Trying to figure out, crack the code of human engagement? Yes. So yes. what's going on there, Kim? What's your findings? Well, a few things. Um, we've got, it's just this perfect storm of. Because it's not recent. Thoreau yes. said that in 1854. What's going on? What's going Absolutely. on? Absolutely. So we've had, you know, centuries since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, I talk about, I, I show in, in some of my presentations, I show a picture of Frederick Taylor. You would know who Frederick Taylor is. Um, many of your listeners will, some won't. But he was the father of scientific management. In fact, there's a think tank whose name escapes me right now, who rated Frederick Taylor's um, uh, scientific management, I think that was the name of the book, uh, as the number one most influential book in the 20th century, influential leadership book in the 20th century. Now, I have not studied Frederick Taylor, and I do not want to um, impugn his great reputation. However, what I do know is that Frederick, many of Frederick Taylor's teachings, so he was all about the science of management. Managing, and that works if you're managing machines, if you're operating machines, but people are not machines. However, due to Frederick Taylor's teaching in a large part, people were treated like machines. And the rise of the HR department, the personnel department, started back in the 30s and 40s, I believe. 
And we started to, as the industrial revolution moved into its maturity and was taken over by the information revolution, we started to try to um, manage by process and practice rather than looking at individuals that work on our teams and for our organizations as people, we tried to treat them like machines. And so we developed policies, we developed procedures, we developed a one size fits all. Now you try and put people in a box um, for decades, if not centuries, and you keep them in that box and you take away their autonomy, take away their control, take away their choice, um, you manage them poorly, you take away their purpose and their inspiration. When they have an opening of that box, they will storm through it. This is what I feel is happening. The skill shortage has opened that box. They recognize, they being the workers of the world, recognize that uh, there are more jobs than people and that this is going to be a fairly permanent condition over the last next several decades. But then you add into it what I like to refer to as years worth of pandemic-induced reflection. So we were you know, some of us more than others here in Australia, we went through some of the most severe lockdowns in the world, especially in Victoria, where Melbourne is located. I think they were the most locked down city. And we had lots of time on our hands to do nothing more than think. And we started to prioritize. So we're now in this perfect storm where there are more jobs than people to fill them. The people who are looking for these jobs are taking these jobs know that the power, the balance of power has shifted. And at the same time, they have reflected on what's important to their lives. And in many cases, work ain't it. They're now more confident about leaving one role, sometimes without another role to go to, because they are desperately searching for a meaningful life. Now, the most savvy organizations that I work with, and I have to give a shout out to Richard Branson's 100% Human at Work Initiative, which is at the forefront of helping us redefine work and helping us be at the forefront of what work looks like. This is an organization that I'm very, very um, intricately, intimately involved in. Um, the most savvy organizations that I work with as my clients or through 100% Human at Work are recognizing that meaning and purpose, giving people meaning and purpose through work is one of the best ways to help people not live lives of quiet desperation, to go back to your Thoreau quote, and to experience a meaningful life realize their potential and make an impact on the world. Because let's face it, the world has a lot of challenges right now. People are desperate to make an impact. Some don't know how, many don't voice it. But every single person that I talk to personally and people that I read about, even uh, you, you look at, not to stray into the political arena, but you look at what happened on January 6th, 
Those are people that are desperate to have an impact. Now, you can argue that that impact may not have been the right impact to, to make, but those are people who are desperate to have an impact. Globally, people are desperate to have an impact. People are desperate to help improve their own lives and the lives of those around them. And one way that we can either enhance or deny that is helping people see meaning in, in work. So uh, this is really interesting. One, we were treated like machines. Our educational systems acted as manufacturing houses just to produce people who could do something. Mm -hmm. To do something wasn't enough. We wanted to lead meaningful lives. And ironically, we pivoted because we weren't getting meaning at work. Maybe we could get it from play. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then we found that empty as well. Yes. And there's this idea that you're you're talking about. Richard Branson's trying to find a way for a company to be that place where people can find their path to impact. That's yes. what you're suggesting. Do I have that right? That that that's part of what they're doing, but that's a great way of articulating that. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. And then we have one other thing though, and this is really interesting. We walk through our different stages of life. I'm sounding like Shakespeare right now. We walk through our different stages of life. And if you think of it, we absorb. I mean, I have grandchildren right now. I'm watching this happen. They're absorbing the mores, the worldviews of the family unit, if they have one. And then they go into school and they absorb the family views of the educational system, the prevailing views of the educational system, all the way through college with the purpose to get a job. Yes. Yes. And most of the education is by rote. Mm -hmm. So there's no enriching experience in that whole manufacturing system. Correct. And the whole time, like you suggested, there seems to be stuff above the line that everyone sees. I see you as a LinkedIn resume. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to place you in that box at work. Mm -hmm. But below the line are all these deep needs. And we very often are fearful at showing them. Yes. Fearful of being found out. So we, Absolutely. Don't, so we don't talk about them. There's a whole psychological profile there. So I, I, I'm wondering... If these millions of dollars we've spent trying to create human engagement at work are missing the point that of two questions, you don't know me and you don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the feeling of being valued has, so back in 2010, when we were coming out of the great recession, the global financial crisis, I uh, built my first model. Having spent 15 years as a recruiter, I and interviewing over 5,000 people, I had 5,000 people come into my office and tell me why they wanted to leave. And I put together this model called the nine currencies of choice, 
which has been, has stood the test of time and has um, been updated only once post-pandemic in 2021, about two years ago, I updated the wording. And one of the, in fact, one of the main currencies of choice is a feeling of belonging. But one of the other currencies of choice, number four, I believe, is the feeling of being valued. Prior to the pandemic, uh, well, since I put together this model and I put it together based on my 5,000 exit interviews, but also I do deep, deep research. So I, I pressure tested this against the research. And career development, the opportunity to learn, grow, and develop, not necessarily vertically, but horizontally. Sheryl Sandberg, the former COO of Nowmeta, said that um, in the future, people's careers will look more like jungle gyms than ladders. So career development was a main driver, but the feeling of being valued. Globally, career development was the biggest driver. You go back and look at Gallup's um, engagement surveys back to 2010, you see career development followed by the feeling of being valued and the feeling of belonging or 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 you know gallops having a best friend at work i i you know people working with people that you like that that camaraderie that community that typically was number 3 but career development feeling of being valued in australia we were an outlier because the feeling of being valued was always number 1 or most of the time was number 1 followed by career development however since the pandemic globally the feeling of being valued has come up as number one in many, many engagement surveys. Now, that feeling of being valued has very little to do with money. Many of, and if you're a leader out here listening to this podcast, you may take exception to that because the reason why your people are telling you that they're leaving is because they're getting offers for better jobs. This is, the, above, this is below uh, above exactly. the waterline, only what you hear and line. see. Okay. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That is their language yeah. for saying you don't value me because sometimes that's the only language that they have access to, but it's not what they're feeling. And I know this for certain because I had people, 5,000 people came into my office. Many, many people were far paid far in excess of market rate. And yet they didn't feel valued because they weren't getting acknowledgement, recognition. They didn't feel seen. They didn't feel heard. And they wanted to leave. Conversely, I had people who were tremendously underpaid in relation to the market, who were coming to my office only because something externally were, was happening and they did not want to leave, but they had to leave. So I know that money is not the driving issue. I call that a pull reason. When people change jobs, they do so for two reasons. There are pull reasons, those reasons that pull them into the next job. But in order for them to even pay attention to those pull reasons, something must push them to look out externally, must push them to answer that LinkedIn email or that phone call from that recruiter. And those push reasons are what managers and leaders need to concentrate on, but most concentrate on the pull reasons. Most say, I can't compete with the wages that my competitors are offering, especially in a skill short market. The good news is you don't have to. The bad news is what you do have to do is shatter the old school paradigm that you have been conditioned 
nobody want i i fundamentally believe that nobody wants to treat people like machines but this is how we as leaders have been conditioned to think of our people as resources now i don't care what you call the human resources department anymore call it people and culture um you know call it talent there are n- lots of different names but it's putting lipstick on a pig in most instances because until you change the paradigm of recognizing that you don't have resources working for you, that you have human beings working with you, that if you can create a compelling purpose and give them the autonomy, the freedom, the choice, the feeling of being valued, the feeling of belonging, they will walk over hot coals to help you achieve your goals. But that's hard. That is the hard way of managing because it takes sitting down and talking to your human beings and getting to know them, understanding what drives them. And luckily, there are only nine things, really. There are only nine things. Understanding what drives them and either delivering on those expectations or managing them effectively when you can't. And I'm not advocating that we try and be all things to all people. I'm not. But I... I do believe that we have to understand them. And if if we cannot meet their expectations, we need to help them find some place that can. That's our duty of care. I'm going to try to summarize them in my own words, Kim, and see if I can honor you with my active listening skills. It strikes me, and I, I, I'm a, I can't help myself, Kim, I'm a systems thinker, and I've been tracking leadership development systems for 40 years, so I can't help myself. So the first thing I think of, if we're talking below the line, can we give people themselves, individuals, a personal development framework I mean, you and I were fortunate enough because there were no frameworks like that that existed. So we had people come into our lives and give us almost spiritual epiphanies that I see you as this, Kim, here's yeah. where I think you belong. I mean, we both Absolutely. had that in our lives. Yes. Absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. But is there a way I can learn who I am and 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 really understand my purpose? Second stage, can I teach them how to communicate it with their relationships, which primarily are at work, otherwise known as a team? Can I can I teach them how to not fear that level of transparency that it's in the hands of people who want their development, both personally and professionally? Can I do that? That's a level of trust. We don't have that level of conversation you're referring to. What is the methodology for that? And finally, and this is the secret sauce, the magic, can we take that personal and professional development and align it with organizational's purpose, mission, and goals? I don't see any of that formally being delivered. Do you? Yeah, Um, very little. Very little in that. If it is, if it is, it's someone like you going in and working for the next three years on it. But that that that's the only thing I see. It absolutely is. No, you're you're right on target. And like I said, this is hard. And we have been, you know, with the cost cutting measures that organizations went through in the 1980s and 1990s, we eliminated the layer of middle management, and we pushed more and more responsibility onto our managers, onto our leaders. We gave them two jobs: their day job 
achieving their goals, their KPIs, OKRs, whatever vernacular you want to use, and leading teams. Where is their priority going to lie? Their day job, because that's what they're recognized on. That's what they're paid on. That's what they're they're bonused on. And so that's why we have um, so many people quiet quitting in the world. That's why we have so many people actively, and it varies by country, but it is not good. You know, what I think the latest Gallup research was only 22% um we're we're totally engaged at work you you know what Gallup said this is really interesting it's so sad they said here's the good news only 73 percent are checked out now last year it was 75 (laughs) yeah 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 exactly I've been studying this for 15 years it's you know the needle has moved one or two points that's it and that's it that's it we don't have but you're absolutely right we have got to fundamentally, we have got to recognize that our people are our greatest resource, but not in terms of, you know, use and abuse, treat them like machinery. Our people are resources that if we work with instead of have work for us, if we help them, um, I, I the words that I use, the language that I use is create a culture of high performance and mutual goal achievement. Figure out what your people's individual's goals are, help them reach their goals. They will, and and once you articulate what your goals are in terms of outcomes, which is something else that most managers get wrong, we still try and manage by checklist, by duties and responsibilities, by tasks, rather than establishing outcomes with measurable results align those two together and you have a high performing organization, high performing teams and high performing individuals. But this takes time, this takes work, and this takes shattering old school thinking. I, When I get up on stage and I, I, I address conferences, I say, I can stand up here all day long. In fact, I could probably stand up here for six months and give you tools um, until the cows come home. I've got more tools than you can shake a stick at. That's the easy part. What I can't do is I cannot help you realize that you have to change paradigms, that it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be messy, and leadership is not for the faint of heart. And most of you should not be leading because it's not where your heart lies. Find where your heart lies and contribute that and then help people who really want to lead step into those leadership roles. And Kim, this is why this has been a great conversation. You have encouraged us to skate to where our hearts are, aligned with our competencies, aligned with people who care deeply about us. And let's both hope and pray that the Branson projects of the world teach us how to design maybe our businesses around our people. Kim, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you, Ron. I very much enjoyed it.